At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Them? Yeah, them. The lowlifes who just spent eight hours of this precious one-way trip we call life watching schlock. I'm in your heads, folks, and you're never going to get rid of me. Every time you see a movie with a cheap set, I'll be there. Every gaping plot hole or monster costume with a zipper, I'll be there too. Fact is, we've always been here. We're the ones who sucked all the art and replaced it with trash. We're the ones who fill your life with so much noise and visual clash. You can't tell the good from the crap anymore. Maybe the truth is out there, but we've mixed it up with so much other stuff, you're never gonna find it. You are alone in this whirlpool of meaningless images. Uh, quick question, though. How can they be alone? And you're always with them whenever there's like a plot hole? Shut up, Max! I'm on a roll here! Just... My point is, your minds have been skillfully mismanaged since the beginning. You are not a person, you're just a data point. And with all the multitudes working to amuse and distract you, there is no one taking the time to look out for you. Wow. That's sobering. Yeah. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Hope you enjoyed that germane clip from Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's exactly what is being done to us by the Archons. This series remains an outstanding modern representation of Plato's cave. Heck and heckity, it's the only occasion when Patton Oswalt is somewhat funny. That's sobering. Ah, Torgo and Ator and the rest who have appeared on the show. You are more logical than the parody that reality has become today. And any reality is still a shadow on a cave wall. Our task is still to go up and out of the Black Iron Prison and into the sunlight of possibility and potential. Nothing has changed in ancient times or here in the twenties, in this Philip K. Dick world, age of Hermes and Gnostic times. Well, it's not really a measure of mental health to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. I got 99 problems and being trapped in a decaying body in a money-hungry society on a dying planet in a mysterious dimension might be one. Or as Stacy Martin wrote, I find myself homesick for a place I do not know, but somehow have not forgotten. Lastly, as the caterpillar told Alice, you are a terribly real thing in a terribly fake world, and that, I believe, is why you are in so much pain. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong at the broken places. But worry not, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars, you of the broken places. We're figuring this out and exiting the shitty cosmic movie theater. How do we do this? I'll get to that soon. But first, 
Thanks for arriving at a special district of the virtual Alexandria. Spastomy! This is madness! Aeon Bagnostic Radio. An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the Blow Your Mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. Will our clits explode? As Hemingway said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. I'm excited to host the brilliant and insightful Carl Abrahamson, again in this eternal now. He will discuss his latest book, Source Magic, The Origins of Art, Science, and Culture. As always, Carl kills it when it comes to panning for that Gnosis gold in the rivers of the marginalized and mysterious, the sacred and the profane. No way! Yes way! One of Carl's underlying themes in his new book is the importance of shamanism for any healthy society and any collective human consciousness. Notice this isn't happening much in our modern times? You embracing your inner shaman is crucial to any gnosis. We are dreamers, shapers, singers, and makers. We study the mysteries. Like Gnosticism, shamanism isn't a religion per se, but a spiritual modality, a metaphysical orientation that attaches itself to surrounding cultures and theologies. It's a parasite faith, the holy but infectious plasmate of Philip K. Dick, if you would. That's sobering. Shamanism and Gnosticism ask us to look at our inner worlds full of planted constructs and hidden authentic selves, and outward to dare the spiritual realms for treasures to enrich the tribe. Shamanism and Gnosticism are transgressive, fringe, and rebellious, but in the end they stand between humans and the gods mediating for the two sides and ensuring they don't exterminate each other. A beautiful morning. Poseidon has blessed our voyage. Sometimes the gods bless you in the morning and curse you in the afternoon. In fact, shamanism and Gnosticism might be the same, even as they both are the only traditions that understand how to manage the most essential of archetypes, the trickster. And you know how on this show, I've more than proven that the trickster is our only hope today, as he or she will doom our culture unless we integrate them into our soul. It's as simple as that. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and takes him like trash! Call the police, I'll tell you what you get! Call the police! get what you fucking deserve! 
To understand shamanism and Gnosticism a little more, let me quote from April DeConnick's The Gnostic New Age. The native ecstatic impulse is very ancient in the Mediterranean religions. However, it was bolstered and reframed when the Greeks made contact with early Siberian and Mongolian shamans, who were specialists in the other world journeys. Stories from the Greeks tells us that historical contact with Mongolian shamanism was made at least as early as the 6th century BCE, when Abaris, a shaman from the north, visited Greece and deputized the famous philosopher Pythagoras. Shamans who lived north and east of the Mediterranean, in the regions of Western and Central Asia, were traditional religious specialists known for their ability to access the spirit world during induced moments of ecstasy. Some people lose their faith because heaven shows them too little. But how many people lose their faith because heaven shows them too much? The shaman's soul was practiced at flight through the underworld and the multi-layered heavens as it sought from the spirit's knowledge of therapeutic remedies for individuals within the community. The centrality of ecstasy and knowledge to the shaman's profession is discernible in the Tungus word for shaman, which some have argued means both knower and raver. No way! Because of their ability to cross the threshold between our world and the other world, some shamans were believed to be psychopomps or guides, escorting newly deceased souls to their final resting place in the afterlife. The shaman gained his status as an ecstatic healer through complicated initiatory ceremonies that allowed the shaman to commune with the spirits, even to shapeshift into their animal forms. I read members of Gnostic sects offered their bodies as a release from the material world. It was not long before people across the Mediterranean had developed their own plans for invading, before death, the realm where humans do not belong. Religious rituals, often elaborate, were set in place. These pre-mortem rituals were meant to break down the human body and reconstitute the person in a form viable in the other world. They were meant to traumatize and raise the body so that a different, suitable body could be formed as a replacement and the initiate could be reborn a transfigured creature. It could be the amplification of the individual, the multiplication of individual existences, parallel existences, now with the individual no longer restricted by time and space. The Gnostics believed they had Gnosis because they had found and met the hidden God directly by undertaking an ecstatic quest. What was shocking was that the God they found was not numbered among the gods of the Babylonian, Egyptian, Jewish, or Greek myths that were being worshipped in the temples down the street. The people desert the temples. They turn from the gods. What gods? You prophets and priests made the gods that you may pray upon the fears of men. Although it is abundantly clear that Gnostic spirituality was forged in ecstatic fires, it is less easy to identify the exact fire, particularly when considering how eclectic Gnostics were. 
In addition to personal revelation, Gnostic systems were fashioned from various religious and philosophical sources. The first Gnostics were pluralists, drawing from any tradition or source that helped them answer their existential questions. So we have thousands of footprints, but no animal. Yaldabaoth's a lesser god, a blind god. He created desire and love. He created guilt, pain, and even death, and the chains that bind us. But none of that is real. Let us to our interview with Carl. Let us find our source magic, our inner shaman, and light the fires of ecstasy to play with the trickster. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. Will our clits explode? And now we come to the most alarming delusion of all. Imagine a cave where those inside never see the outside world. Instead, they see shadows of that world projected on the cave wall. The world they see in the shadows is not the real world. But it's real to them. If you were to show them the world as it actually is, they would reject it as incomprehensible. Now what if, instead of being in a cave, you were out in the world, except you couldn't see it? Because you weren't looking. Because you trusted that the world you saw through the prism was the real world. But there's a difference. You see, unlike the allegory of the cave, where the people are real and the shadows are false, here, other people are the shadows. Their faces, their lives. This is the delusion of the narcissist, who believes that they alone are real because other people are just shadows, and shadows don't feel, because they're not real. But what if everyone lived in caves? Then no one would be real, not even you. Unless one day you woke up and left the cave, how strange the world would look after a lifetime of staring at shadows. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure and the honor once again being joined by Carl Abrahamson, this time to discuss his new book, Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. Carl, thank you very much for coming back. Thank you for having me. It was. It felt like it was only yesterday. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> Saturn is not kind, is he? Uh, uh. <laughs> he eats everything. Uh, and with us, we've got the Moon Dog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? 
Oh, I'm uh, just fine. It's uh, magic that I can show up this early in California time. So <laughs> I'm already started. There you go. There you go. All right, Carl. Well, I like I said, I enjoyed this book. Tell the audience uh, what exactly is the book. Uh, it is um, kind of a follow-up to the one called Occulture that came out in 2018 in the sense that it formally... Um, it is an anthology, basically, of essays and lectures and um, uh, other bits that I've produced over these past years. So um, that can have a tendency at, at times to sort of be eclectic and disparate and go in different directions and stuff. But but my <laughs> maybe my thinking is a bit limited. It usually stays within the same uh, playground. And, and uh, what has happened this time is that over these past years, I've been thinking more and more about, you know, what the hell is everything? <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. But what I mean is that when you look at things from, um, uh, as I tend to do, from a magico-anthropological perspective, that means that you're interested in, in magic and, and how magic relates to human beings and vice versa, and how it affects our cultures and all these things, Then then you sort of realize that Basically, everything that we are familiar with today, everything that we are accustomed to today in terms of things dealing with the mind specifically, like philosophy, like religion, like uh, social behaviors, all of it basically stems from a kind of um, shamanic or even proto-shamanic behavior or cluster of behaviors that has traveled with us genetically uh, and also I guess, from the time we started writing things down or making images and stuff like that, um, also in a documented form, but specifically genetically. Uh, And what I mean is that the early shamanic behavior, we're talking about caves, we're talking about primal tribes, very small communities, uh, they've always had this uh, person or persons that have gone beyond, that have gone inside, that have transcended and gone on little inner journeys uh, that usually call shamanic journeys. And then they've brought wisdom and information back to the tribe. Back then, we assume, mostly having to do with how do we best survive? Uh, And then, you know, as time moves on and humanity becomes uh, more numerous and more complex, then we have this thing that we no longer have specified specific shamans. We have um, proxy shamans in a way that become the priests or the philosophers or the artists that on their own go on a tangent and go on inner journeys, maybe within organized structures and then tell people uh, what to do, how to behave, etc. But everything, everything we look at comes from this shamanic source. And that's what you know, where the title came from, Source Magic. And there's a couple of essays in the book also that talk about um, this this phenomenon specifically, or I, I wouldn't say it's a phenomenon. It's just something that is, you know, those are our roots. So we can never eradicate that uh, as, um, you know, little as we can eradicate um, other things in our genes and in our um, communal uh, memory in a way. So it is very fascinating. And then, of course, I like to look at things also that are going on today, you know, in culture. Um, And I love this um, word 
called uh, Occulture, of course, like my previous book, uh, but also the, the, the actual process, you know, it's called occulturation. Uh, previously, anthropologists have talk, talked about acculturation, acculturation, when, for instance, two cultures meet and they adapt to each other and, you know, get accultured to each other, um, or a new philosophy that comes into one culture, etc. But there's also this specific thing called uh, occulturation, where things come from the hidden spheres, where they come from the band spheres, the, the um, uh, spheres that for some reason are uh, ostracized within a culture, uh, because that eventually happens. You know, things grow in the dark and then they come up and it becomes flowers. And that happens also within our uh, culture. So I write a little bit about um, uh, things that I've uh, come across that I found find uh, interesting and, and uh, in my own life and in, in general perspectives also, um, and about things that are, I consider, uh, worthwhile and relevant from a magical point of view, like, for instance, the concept of pilgrimage, uh, which I see, I, I think it's something that is very, very um, uh, crucial, important for people to go on pilgrimages. We usually associate it with, you know, Santiago de Compostela and sort of these established religions, uh, but they're, they're, they can be, can be on a more uh, private and a sort of... Uh, um, small scale level also that has the same kind of beneficial uh, effect it's not only that you go somewhere with an intent but you go with an intent to become uh, replenished or revitalized and and that's usually what happens because you have that mind frame you have that intent um whether it comes from meeting a specific person or or a specific uh, landmark something in nature uh but so it, so it's a ritual basically you go there to do something or to acquire something or get something and then you come back as a as a <laughs> new new person <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so and basically there's um yeah there's a lot of stuff in there i sort of uh talk about um uh austin osman spare the old british magician that's been very influential ezra pound and and uh, magical realism this sort of literary uh category and and uh, some thoughts about my friend uh, Genesis P. Orridge, who died a few years ago. And it, it, it's like a little, um, uh, literally, I hope, a goodie bag. You know, you can stick your hand into the goodie bag and sort of bring <laughs> out bring out weird little things. Yeah, there's something for everyone. And uh, yes. like you said, there are some strong themes that come out, that unifying themes, which we can discuss. And mm -hmm. interesting about shamanism, because yes, uh, in ancient times, the shaman didn't just have to be, you know, the guy painted who went into the spirit world and dodged spirits to bring back information to save the tribe. He could be the poet, the philosopher. Uh, there were different uh, ways a shaman can be. And in our modern era, who would you call a shaman? Because, for example, I mean, you could say Roger Waters or Jimmy Page could be shamans, Terrence mm -hmm. McKenna, or mm -hmm. what is a modern shaman? Well, I think they're they're good examples because they have uh, those three people have the ability, uh, have had the ability, or and still do, I guess, uh, not Terence McKenna, but you know, to to bring people into another state of mind simply by right. conveying what they have through the language that they have. You know, if you're in a huge arena and you have Led Zeppelin, you know, prime era, what that could be, maybe 1977 or something, 76, and, you know, you listen to Jimmy Page playing, it takes you somewhere else. You're not in your normal routine frame of mind. So in that sense, they provide 
uh, transcendental experiences and pink floyd also who you know catering to the, the more psychedelically inclined uh, with their majestic shows and stuff like that and terence mckenna of course thematically um dealing with with psychedelics uh, so that that's one thing however I see it very much as connected not only with the transcendental experience in itself, but also with a, um, a dissemination of uh, information uh, or wisdom. And and um, I think that, you know, um, shamans in our culture could be, um, for instance, um, not that I in any way advocate it, <laughs> but it could be people who experiment recreationally with, with um uh, psychedelic stimulants, for instance, in not as a party thing, uh, but to go, for instance, you know, on an uh, ayahuasca trip or or something like that. Meaning, again, a kind of pilgrimage where you go into a different state of mind and and possibly a different geography also, uh, in order to acquire information and wisdom about something going on in your life and possibly uh, in the lives of others. Yeah, we call them influencers now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that, but but it, it, it's not it's not a, a bad bad point there, uh, because the thing is when you deal with information of a kind that is not readily accepted by a collective that, for instance, is run by empirical um, methods, where empiricism has become the new religion in a way, uh, when you're not under that umbrella, then, you know, some people will cock an eye and say that, oh, th this is nothing. This is just a fantasy. Uh, however, <laughs> fantasy is very much a part of reality. And I, I would argue that it's not fantasy. It's an inner journey, an inner experience that we are unfortunately not told to validate we we uh, are are um, as soon as we're out of the stage of the um uh, you know childhood fancies um then you know we were taught that you know uh, focus on this this is real this is rational this is you know um tangible uh, tangential to our um sensory input etc etc and you know and then suddenly that kind of uh, validation that for instance you get from um dreams that's a that's it's a good allegory or a good uh, parallel thing you know we all dream we all most of us wake up you know remember fragments of dreams uh we can't really say that they are unreal we, we have come up with a term in you know post freud etc it's called it's the unconscious it's the unconscious talking to us well if dreams can affect us to the extent that we wake up with um uh, in terror or pleased or even if we're male with an erection or more you know uh, then that would give evidence to the fact that it is very much real what we're experiencing in this irrational way uh, and and then you could argue you know well it's just like the brain trying to get back in order but so what it's we experience it as much as when we put our hand on a hot stove and we remove it because it gives the information remove it or you will burn you know it hurts so in that sense the classic shamanic uh, experience uh, the inner journey um, is something you experience on your own and and uh, one of the sort of messages uh, perhaps you could call it that one of the messages i do have is that one should absolutely validate whatever you experience on the inner plane uh, and you don't have to share it with anyone else unless you uh, feel that you want to uh, because it is you talking to yourself 
I do not ascribe um, these experiences to something external, you know, like spirits or gods or whatever. Or if you call them that, that would go so far as to say those are also human constructions. Those are things that you create. Um, but they are relevant because you get one image, you get one message and not another. It's not a chaos. It's not a jumble. You get something specific. And you could also draw the analogy to when people use uh, what you could call oracular tools, like I guess the most common one today, which is definitely um, uh, in the mainstream, is the, the tarot, for instance, right. where you have these uh, some symbols, you know, the symbols are given in a way, like with the I Ching, you can consult a list of meanings, but, but still, uh, it only becomes alive and relevant when you yourself validate when you value and validate and interpret you know then it becomes meaningful as an oracular tool it's not something that is imposed from from um, from the outside from an authority and he, and here i think um, this kind of um, proto shamanic attitude um, becomes related to what i know that you're interested in very much uh, the gnostic approach uh, because that is also a distinct heritage from uh, the shamanic where you yourself go into a direct communication with god or the demiurge or other um, uh, forces uh, because it's part and parcel of something that we have later called gnosticism it's an ism uh, and and agnostic approach an agnostic approach is the same as the shamanic in the sense that it's there for a reason to, to uh, you know, say grace in a way, be appreciative, show um, reverence. And then in exchange for that, we get information. And it doesn't come from a priesthood. It doesn't come from a structure. It doesn't come from a uh, control organization. It comes from the depths of your own psyche. Or if we want to go that far, from your soul. So you can see that that um, remnants or remains or, or shards in a way are very much present in a culture that we can look at. And I would say that, you know, um, the psychedelic journey and, and how that affected culture, mostly from, from the 1960s and onwards, is definitely kind of a beckoning or a calling from um, some part of ourself, which says, uh, do not discard the information that you get when you're an, on an inner journey, uh, irregardless of how um, you're going on that journey, you know, what, what techniques or methods or, or possibly even chemicals. Uh, the main thing is to do it because that I believe it's inherent in our uh, survival instinct. We need to go on these things um, in order to have information uh, to see how we survive basically and that's why all of this is so uh, present today well, you know in general what i call o culture so like all of these uh, mystery traditions all of these magical schools all of these things that have been occulted in a way has they have now through the process of occulturation become o culture and and eventually they end up in the mainstream and i think what's the lesson here is to sidetrack the structures to sidetrack the organizations because um, 
uh, well, you know, they've had their time and history has proven them fairly much wrong in a way that they have been tied to uh, quite draconian measures and quite draconian uh, results, you know, if you look at the environment, etc. And and uh, it's not, you know, you, you uh, in Sweden, we have this thing where you say you shouldn't cry over spilled milk. Meaning basically, you know, what's done is done. You know, what can you do? You can't turn the clock back. You can only exist in the present and work for a better future. And I think that um, there is a reason to why we're so immersed now in spiritual things, in new age things, in occult things, uh, in uh, alternative religious things, in reverence for indigenous cultures, etc., etc. It's because we need to reassess and relearn how to deal with life in a healthier way. That's really well said and agree with you on all counts for sure. And even uh, things that we might not like from where we're standing, Carl, for example, uh, fundamentalist Christians handling yeah. snakes or the mega church pastor who can heal people yeah. or people are speaking tongues. We go, well, we go, oh, well, it is sorry, but it is shamanism. And in a way it keeps their community held together and sane and safe. We may not agree with a lot what they do, but they are also practicing shamanism. Mm. No, I agree. I agree. And, and I think that what happens is that if you look at those phenomena, for instance, you know, evangelical movements and how they began, you know, like, um, you know, primitive traveling missionaries that become little clusters and they have their little churches and they have a specialized thing in their tradition, you know, uh, I'm sure you can find really interesting things there. The problem is, uh, as with politics, as with a lot of things within uh, the human mind frame, it's, it's when it becomes corrupt. It's simply the allure of power and money. And, and uh, <laughs> sometimes they're the same. Um, and and uh, that's the problem. So, and, and that's also why I, I don't, uh, as you know, I certainly don't see myself as a Christian or a, or a monotheist in any way, but I am not one to disrespect what someone else believes uh, in that sense, because, you know, originally it came from this, the same source, which was still agnostic magical culture from around the Mediterranean area. And it was filled with magic and, you know, what I would say, good things, healthy things for the mind and the psyche. The problems always come when someone steps up and says, I will interpret this for you and you will do, you will adapt to the rules of this group uh, who that claimed that to have the... Um, you know, the right to interpret whatever divine or, or uh, spiritual things there are. And that's when, when human culture goes wrong. Uh, because once corrupts, corruption in itself uh, has taken hold, it is kind of impossible to, to uh, uproot. Uh, and we see that in, 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 in cultures, usually when it comes to political things, you know, people cling to power. Uh, but it's also very clear, I think, simply when groups become too big you know you can have a small uh, religious community for instance that are very happy and they work well together but as soon as you lose touch with the thing that i call the source which is this individual journey to to um, uh, enlightenment or to information um then then it becomes very muddled muddled you know, and, and someone will always see, well, here's a chance for me not only to control people, but also to make a buck, 
<laughs> and, and and that's really what what's uh, going on so i think you know if you're referring to like holy rollers or or mm -hmm. other kinds of sideshow attractions that may have had some real you know as you say a shamanic substance that may come from something genuine uh became commodified at some point and again there you have it you have the mega uh, churches and the, the 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 tv pastors and it's just we, and they just represent a scam it's all about uh getting poor people usually to pay their hard-earned dollars uh, to someone who don't need it at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Exactly, and it's a, a tale as old as time. I'm sure there were times when in, oh, yeah. in ancient time, the shaman kept more of the food. Of course, you've got the, the priest and the king who had all the nice uh, rooms and money and all that. I, don't you almost admire the old prophets from the Hebrew Bible, like Isaiah and those guys living in the wilderness, living like hippies, shaking their fists like Grandpa Simpson at Jerusalem, like, get mm. your act together. Mm. Those were cool shamans, huh? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That, that there again, you have, you're talking about, you know, myths that are still vibrant. And, and vital for people who live in those religions, for instance, you could use them as models or as archetypes of how to behave uh, when it comes to these things. But also it, it's very culturally um, structured because you can also have um, monastic cultures are interesting, for instance, because originally they were not corrupt, but still it was based on the um, agreement uh, that if the community provides for the monastery, whether it's Buddhist or Christian or, or something else, um, you provide for us and we will have this particular space as a spiritual or religious repository and we can learn things. We can develop our faith or our system, uh, which will also benefit you. Uh, and uh, I have no uh, insight into how Christian monasteries uh, function today. I know they exist. But I've been to Tibet, for instance, and also been to uh, Tibetan environments in India and Nepal. And, and there you can see how that actually uh, works. It's like um, uh, women and men being, in, uh, being at school, in a way, actually sort of university level of spiritual teaching and, and doing work uh, for the community. And for that, the community... Um, gives them what they need in terms of food or money or sustenance or uh, and it's an interesting thing that is also um, a memory or a remnant or a remain from a much 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 older way of dealing with things uh, meaning it's not you using um, the spiritual experience as barter it is simply a, a communal service that is part and parcel of the totality that needs that to be healthy no it makes perfect sense and uh here's a question i probably should ask uh, how do you define magic carl i mean obviously very popular today is sort of the dion fortune 
magic is the science of altering consciousness in accordance with the will and it yeah. makes it kind of elastic because you could include nazi propaganda or corporate advertising yeah. or psychology or you can it, you can include so much more today but how do you uh define magic mm -hmm. it, it's it's uh the best question ever <laughs> i love it <laughs> uh, and it is i have given it a lot of thought and and uh, again you know it was there before crowley but crowley said this thing you know it's a you know um uh, the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will and then you have various derivations and variations in that theme uh, but i think that that can become too crass it can become too causal it can become you know when we think about it uh, based on our culture with fairy tales and stuff, we want a bit of drama. We want a bit of romanticism. <laughs> uh, we want a bit of, again, transcendence. And I, and I think that's, that's really a key to it because human beings need transcendence and, and not necessarily by proxy. They need to experience transcendence themselves. themselves. So I think that the, if I were to say this, and I have defined it, uh, I'm not sure it's the perfect definition, but I say that magic is a mind frame that allows for all other definitions to pass through it, uh, meaning that that um, uh, it's it's an individual thing, you know. But if you you ask me, which you did to define it, I I I would need some kind of uh, extra layer, something that is literally fantastic, something that is out of the ordinary. It can certainly have to do with my own intent or someone else's intent in question, because that, that's how we sort of become accustomed to think about it. You do something supernatural to, to, to get something. You do something out of the ordinary. But it could also be something that takes you uh, to a place uh, of feeling uh, or, or experiencing like watching a movie that just blows your mind or being out in nature and and it's so beautiful that you cry and you 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 turn to your friend or friends and you say this is magical that happens quite often you know when people say mm -hmm. that, yeah. that she's really magical that film was magical so what they mean by that it means that it's out of the ordinary it means that it evokes um, an emotional reaction uh, in the um, uh, person who is, you know, partaking or watching this thing. And I, I don't know, now I'm speaking in English and we're talking about basically a Western Anglo-Saxon perspective where we are used to saying that, you know, I, I say that many times a day. And if you think about it, you do probably too. And, and friends of yours, you know, wow, that, that's a magical thing. Wow, what a magical mu piece of music, you know, because it takes you somewhere else. So it has this, uh, that uh, potential and capacity to, to uh, make you transcend your normal, rational frame of mind. However, uh, if we were to stay there alone, if we were to stay with that definition, uh, then we sort of lose the thing that um, is actually driving it, the, the original you know, impetus. And that is you know, to change something. Uh, to turn one thing into another. And we have it symbolically, and I guess also um, um, 
realistically or, or in, in real experimentation, at least with the symbols of alchemy, when you take something dross or base and you turn it into gold, you know, um, I'm not so sure that it's possible to change, you know, lead into gold, <laughs> but I, you know, I, if I can see it, I will believe it. You would be uh, living in a mansion right now, not talking. Yeah, to me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, or, or um, any other kind of symbols of transformation that the, our myths are so uh, filled with. Um, but if you look at it as that, as symbols, uh, then that sort of defines our um, understanding of magic. It is about changing something into something else. Uh, and therefore, the, we have the kinship with art, for instance, that has the same kind of immediate uh, modes of behavior and how it works, because you either take something and change it, or you you really put your hand into an empty hat and bring out a rabbit, as it, you bring out something <laughs> completely new, uh, which is what an artist does in a way, either you know transforms something existing or comes up with something entirely new. And of course, everything has has its uh, origins somewhere, and we could you know just for the sake of it accept that the human mind and the human soul or whatever we want to call it is kind of in you know, indefinite, it has infinite depth and we can bring things out of it and it's fantastic. And the people with talent, creative talents that can give this form uh, are uh, very much the magicians of our culture. And I think they, they have been since that dispersion of the uh, original shaman in a way. Uh, artists have been the real uh, proxy people as have the, the pioneering scientists because it's the same thing there, you know. You have an idea that comes from somewhere, and you give that idea form, and you formulate it so that other people can take take uh, part of it, uh, or it can be used or exploited or or whatever for the benefit of uh, the greater community. Um, so it is a very tricky thing to define. But again, I would say that it, you know it is magic is the mind frame that allows all definitions of it to pass through it because it can be so many things for for um uh, for different people but i think you know the transcendental aspect is one thing and then that it is connected somehow with change with bringing intent into the picture whether it's just one you know greedy little amateur magician or it's something very very altruistic and big goals that some some community of magical people are working towards Oh, yeah. It's like uh, talking about love. I think the fun is discussing it and experience it. Same with magic or there, or even time. What did Augustine said when somebody asked him what is time? He's like, uh, if you don't ask me the question, I know the answer. So, mm -hmm. sometimes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I mean, all these uh, <sighs> highfalutin philosophies in a way that, that are not uh, immediately beneficial to our life on a day-to-day -day basis, meaning, you know, <laughs> in a way quite decadent, <laughs> decadent philosophies yeah. that, that don't bring something immediately to the table. However, that is part of, of high culture because when we can allow people who have that capacity to think and formulate lofty ideas, uh, then that's the sign that we are beyond the Stone Age, that we don't have to fight and grovel in the dirt and, you know, just... Uh, uh, kill our enemies and, and rape their women and, and whatever that were not primitive basically and i think that um, 
one of the most interesting eras from uh, a magical anthropological um, perspective was of course the the mainly the Italian Renaissance when all of these um, philosophies from the Mediterranean region, whether it was from from Greece or Egypt or or um, uh, the um, Mid East and, and beyond, actually uh, brought stuff into the existing mind frame uh, that allowed for that to exist sometimes even in defiance of the catholic church uh, and and that was a, a flourishing flowering culture in so many ways um, that we look back at it uh, through historical records and saying this is kind of a, a peak peak moment in in uh, human history and we could look at things that happened later also you know with, with um you know, the Baroque music, Baroque art in the 17th centuries, you know, and later also that, you know, where art becomes something that drives people to new levels of thinking. So someone could be inspired by a piece of music by Bach, for instance, and come up with ideas in completely different field, simply because the culture allows for, uh, again, I would say a transcendental experience where something is so beautiful that you're overwhelmed and that in turn gives you something. You might be a mechanic or a smith or, or uh, a writer. You know, it gives you inspiration to come up with ideas, although the original force was in a completely different form. Yes, indeed. I would agree with you on that as well. And uh, another chapter, which I liked, you have a, a chapter on magic realism. And I think that's also important, especially in the West, uh, North America, Western Europe that we sort of embrace. I mean, I grew up in Mexico and other places. So, of course, I read a lot of Jorge Luis Borges, Gabriel mm -hmm. Garcia Marquez, all these guys. And it wasn't even the literature, Carl. It was the life. I mean, for example, yeah. my mom and I could be waiting at a corner for this lady that was going to bring us uh, fruit. And we'd be like, you know, why are you late? And she's like, well, the devil came and tempted me. <laughs> and you didn't even ask. You, yeah. you just said, okay, sure, that's your reality. Yeah, you, you, yeah. you met Satan. He wanted to steal your fruit. Uh, can we now haggle? Yeah. So it, yeah. It's part of the culture. And it was a, it was a, it's a nicer way to live. Don't mm -hmm. you think? Uh, maybe explain about magic realism and how it can help us today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's our usually our first association when, when you have this these two words, you know, magical realism. It has become a, a literary uh, yeah. category. And you mentioned Borges and Marquez, and and there are many others also from from different cultures. You know, uh, the Japanese have great magical realists, and they, they're all over basically. If in case you you can actually put them under the same umbrella, but what I mean and what was the uh, so the spark for uh, writing this particular chapter is about uh, usually when we are um, taking part of culture, whether it's movies or 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 literature or or whatever it is, it's like we're used to uh, being presented with a narrative that has actually the narrative has a form so if we read a book and we know it's fiction because we recognize the name of the author so we expect a narrative that is fictional that will give us a bit of repose and and you know take us somewhere else uh, temporarily while we read it whether it's a short story or a novel 
you know, and, and if it were a book about something, it would be clearly stated that this book is about that thing. Uh, but magical realism is very, very interesting because usually when we talk about uh, novels, well, it's fiction, but it's not poetry. Poetry is something that is formally uh, upheaving your expectations. You have to go in, into the form and the form has to be attractive and luring for you to get to the end. If it isn't like too experimental or too, you know, uh, I don't know, complex, then you just sort of lose interest. Whereas a good author that writes fiction uh, will lure the reader into the web and, and move the reader forward through the story, through the narrative. Uh, magical realism has this thing where there are things that are not quite right. <laughs> you know, there is some, something uh, out of the ordinary, something off key, uh, something that is could be dissonant or simply too weird or too fantastic. It doesn't belong there. And that sort of uh, for some people, makes you curious to say, whoa, this is really interesting. What the hell is this? And you keep reading. Uh, and for other people, it's like, whoa, this is too weird. I'll read a <laughs> Stephen King book instead, you know, uh, or something else that you sort of feel comfortable, comfortable with because you basically know what's going to happen, both in terms of form and content. Um, so uh, that's interesting, the kind of effects that uh, magical realism can have. And I believe that it can be also applied on uh, daily life in a way or our daily, daily uh, existence, meaning that small, uh, odd changes can bring great benefits to our lives and again we return to this thing you know the source magic aspect that uh, small deviations small transcendences or, or or transgressions even can bring great benefits to our uh, life experience to our psyches to our to our uh, uh, development to our individuation meaning you're not stuck on the same path that probably someone else has uh, pointed out to you but you could also sidestep you can go on a tangent you can you can jump and skip or you can go on a bike or a fast car you can do things differently and and that in that sense there's a, a kinship there with uh, the literature of magical realism uh, where um, again very small changes can create great effects and then i in the same essay i also um change the the words around um which you can only do in one way basically that's calling it um uh, real magic uh you know and 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 what is that then well uh, and i compare that with for instance um uh, the slightly negative effects of the form of news media for instance and of commercial advertising meaning they use forms that are uh, convincing enough to make you believe in what's being said or sold. Um, an example can be the, the form of the material uh, that comes from a cell phone. Nowadays, the cameras are so good on cell phones, but we can still discern, say that this is something that someone shot with, a, with, with their, with their uh, smartphone. Uh, and when we see things like that in the news, you know, shaky, handheld, Right. usually portraying something violent like abuse or beatings or even war you know then we immediately through the form accept that it's real that it's true 
so to speak. Uh, whereas if we have something that is completely pastel colored, streamlined in a 4K or 8K high definition, uh, well lit, etc., then we immediately assume or take for granted that this is fiction. So the form has a lot to say with um, when we interpret the, the images that comes from others. And, and all of these things are used for uh, manipulation. Uh, for instance, in propaganda, you, know, you can have fake smartphone um, uh, images, or you can, uh, you know, in various ways manipulate how the material looks and thereby how we interpret it. Uh, commercial advertising is another such, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> morass, morass of, of, of where, where people, this classical thing is that, you know, why are they repeating the same message? It just makes me angry. But the, when you're in the aisle and you choose the product, that will still be the, the name of the brand that you will pick because it's like pure indoctrination. Right, yeah. uh, and and uh, so things like that. I think that uh, you know, um, it's better to learn that by changing a few things in your own narrative, you can learn a lot more about yourself than if the narrative is completely straight and narrow. Uh, and it might even be a narrative that's been given you by someone else. Um, and and. Uh, what I mean by real magic, it's not necessarily that reality as such is, is harsh and negative, but one should also be aware that that um, the, the realism of the real can also have uh, magical implications, meaning of a negative kind, that someone is trying to affect you, to indoctrinate you, or to sell you something by similar things. You know, usually when you, you if we were to describe a commercial, for instance, uh, it's a family, they're happy by a table, uh, and they're eating food, and you can see <laughs> the, the food they're eating. If with a different soundtrack, it could be from a sitcom. You know, right. uh, from from with a different soundtrack again, it could be a documentary. But we are, we are accustomed to to sort of uh, have the entire form convey a message that these people are happy. They eat super flakes, so you need to eat buy super flakes <laughs> also. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's basically it. And then of course, I love uh, magical realism. I love those. That kind of fiction because um i think uh it affected me and i think that's the the the, the spark of me writing it was that for instance i love borges it's kind of you know what is it well <laughs> if you really want to analyze why it's so fascinating it is because it's out of the ordinary it's out of the uh, expected oh yeah and you mentioned uh, examples that people can relate to here in the west william boros herman hesse to an extent yeah. you say george orwell yes for the audience uh i don't know carl have you seen uh paul thomas anderson's film magnolia 1999 yes yes, I've seen that. yes that's a perfect example because you have a movie that has internal logic it's uh it's very secular whatever and all of the sun in one scene it rains frogs and mm -hmm. you don't find out why it rains frogs yeah, yeah. there is no reason it just rains frogs and as, as strange it is the the raining of the frogs actually helps a lot of the character development and their decisions for their healing and individuation and people go well well that movie made no sense why is it raining frogs and i'm like does it make sense that in that movie people were doing drugs and cheating on each other and hurting each other and yeah 
all lying, this illogical. Lying to themselves. Yeah, yeah, dysfunctional destruction. But the frogs don't make sense. Yeah, you know, it's the other yeah. way. It yeah. should be. Yeah. I think that's a perfect example. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. And and to clarify what what we both mean is that 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 scene is is completely out of the ordinary. But the film in itself is not surreal. You know, it, it's not like a Buñuel film or or <laughs> classical surrealism where everything is just cuckoo crazy. That that's something else. But but uh, Magnolia and other films like that, they they have a straight narrative, but something weird happens that displaces you, that sort of challenges your um, expectations. It's the disruption of of uh, belief in a way. Exactly. Eraserhead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, for sure. that's a real from beginning to end, right? Y- yeah, no, yeah, not yeah. really. Not really. He's kind of that's ordinary drab industrial thing and he's got his girlfriend and all that and it's it fades in you know yeah no it's very special but i i see what you what you mean because it's it's uh, although sur- sur- surrealistically inspired it does have a pretty straight narrative it's someone's anxiety and depression that is just o- overwhelming and it takes on a formal expression through the cinematography and the scenography and and just the the, the child acting. Yeah, the child. The child. Yeah, the, the lady singing, and you know, it's it's um, yeah, it's dreamy. Yeah, you just sub if you substitute a, a real baby for the eraser head baby, uh, it's probably more yeah. obvious, you know. Mm-hmm. Although the lady in the radiator, that's totally surreal, but that's his dream. Yeah. Right? That's a dream, exactly. And many, many, you know, standard uh, narratives have dream sequences, and I think you know. Uh, one shouldn't question why people artists do things, but it could be like a, a trick or a gimmick or a method to displace temporarily. But it's a displacement that is more uh, readily accepted because it's so clearly stated that it's a dream. You know, someone goes to bed and has a dream about this thing that happened during the day. Uh, then we expect it to be weird because we have that categorization, the dream. Yeah. Nobody where, has where... normal dreams, right? I had the weirdest <laughs> dream. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, magical. That's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch is definitely in his own category. And even when people ask David Lynch, can you give us a summary of your film? He's like, my film is a summary. Watch it. It's yeah. like he's not going to go any further. Yeah, yeah. Never. <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> How about The Prestige? Do you like that movie? Uh, that one I haven't seen. Oh, you got to see that. The Prestige. Okay, when is that from? It came out a long time ago, 2000 somewhere. It's got got Wolverine and, you know, Hugh Jackman. The Prestige. Yeah, I'm going to... to, Christian uh, Bale, Michael Caine, Scarlett Johansson. Oh, whoa, whoa. Yes, I've I've seen that. That's a great film. Yeah, it's sort of uh, England in the late uh, 19th century, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that yeah, that's a good film. That's a good film. Yeah, it has a bearing on all the things that you've been talking about yeah, about reality. Yeah, that's and true. Magic. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Um, this brings us to something that certainly relates. Again, for the audience, source magic does has have a theme that you will find for your life and the the culture surrounding it. But in ancient times, uh, <clears throat> the shaman just didn't go on a walk about a pilgrimage and get all the treasures for his tribe. He had to deal with naughty spirits evil spirits what the gnostics would later call the archons and uh, 
so forth and obviously in magic realism these things that pop out like uh satan popping out of nowhere frogs falling on your hair they sort of upend your life and change your reality and this leads right into an important figure i feel today and that is the trickster carl and you have a chapter on the trickster lose per Knox based on loki so yeah. <laughs> do, do you feel the trickster is as important as we talk about i mean hermes transformed the renaissance right and he was sometimes a trickster so oh, i think we need the the trickster what do you think of loki and how can we learn from this magic realistic god <laughs> uh, i i think it's ab absolutely super 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 uh, quintessential i cannot stress enough how important the trickster is and and that also brings in the devil figure or you know the antithetical figure uh, or symbol or force it, it is so important for the overall health of of uh, the human being as an individual and the community and and the culture in general uh, and i think that the problem with the um uh, monotheist cultures is that it's simply become too extreme in its diam what do you call it the diametrical uh, approaches is is so dualistic you know it's only god and satan there's not really much in between whereas in the po polytheistic um uh, cultures you have a wide spectrum of psychological qualities uh, given form through the various gods and i think that's in a way healthier because it gives you uh, as a um, as a citizen or as a human being the the opportunity to sort of have your favorite god or feel like that yeah. god or goddess today and it's sort of it's, it's a little bit more psychologically insightful than only dark and and light um however it's pretty obvious and you know you could look at it uh from the point of view of uh, business as well you know uh, if we have one company developing one thing uh, mastering that and then becoming anxious not to let go <laughs> of the market <laughs> shares that are 100% that's usually called a monopoly right. and 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 some you know uh, it can be great but it does become a little bit inert because you maintain something but why would you need to develop something when there's no need for it when people are happy to to swallow the commercial advertising and buy your product then you have something called competition competition drives the uh, general culture of whatever it is you're doing forward uh, and this an upstart or a rebel or someone who leaves the monopoly company says that basically f you i'm going to start my own thing uh, and and then basically comes up with something that makes the old inert thing go whoa we have to react to this too otherwise we'll lose market shares and then there's a kind of a war you know and on that level it's good it's good it brings something good perhaps an improved product that will make people uh, happier in a way and of course, it's also good in the monopoly of religion, uh, because if you don't have the devil figure, some kind of satanic force, then everything will just be, you know, uh, 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 tyrannical. You will have a tyrannical daddy god uh, who tells everyone what to do uh, and everyone <laughs> accepts it. And if people don't accept it, they will be severely punished or ostracized or banished. You know, it, I know it's it's a it's a simplification, but that's basically uh, how I look at it. And then you have uh, Loki is not a god, but he's still housed in the pantheon of the uh, Asa gods in the in the sort of the Nordic pantheon uh, as a 
you know, sidekick almost to Odin, the, the main and highest god, who is also very much a shamanic god, a god of magic. And um, I raised the question or the speculation in my text in the Source Magic book, you know, whether uh, Loki is not actually a part of um, Odin's magic. Well, definitely, but maybe even part of Odin. Because if you're a magician that is, who is so advanced, in in those uh, approaches of shape shifting and and uh, just being completely fluid as the young people would say today malleable um, in their um, existence and and using different and very experimental methods in in achieving whatever it is that that uh, Odin wants to achieve uh, i think that for the overall psychic health of the environment of the Nordic gods, Loki is there to provoke. And I believe that Odin knows uh, that it's needed, but he himself, as being the big daddy of that community, cannot allow himself to be fully you know, ridiculous, fully irritating, fully uh, threatening. But Loki uh, has that uh, gestalt, in a way, that persona that can uh, be that force, the, the satanic force in a way. And that's basically what that chapter or that essay is about. And it's uh, also more to do with uh, the Fenris wolf, um, which is a, a very interesting um, factor or force in the, again, Nordic pantheon during uh, Ragnarök, which is basically the apocalypse. You know, the, the Fenris wolf devours the, the sun and things end, but everything starts anew because it's in that kind of religion or philosophy where uh, things are uh, reborn, you know, rebooted, just like the sun comes up in the east, then a new civilization will uh, emerge after the, the after the apocalypse in a way. So the Fenris wolf is usually seen as something negative because it has connotations to the end and violence and disruption and, and things like that. But all of these forces that... Uh, push things onward to, to that uh, critical uh, mo moment, they are needed in order to make it happen. Otherwise, they cannot be um, a development into something new. It cannot be a, there cannot be a rebirth. There cannot be a re-emergence of, of uh, power and health and things like that. Uh, I mean, that's, that's how we function also in the sense that uh, we are born, we become adults, we sire our own uh, babies and and then we die basically that's the <laughs> sad trajectory of, we all of, have a ragnarok <laughs> yeah yeah we, we all have a ragnarok exactly but but that said you know um there's some things you can't really do anything about you know you have some medical advances but we we all die you know that's just the the, the sad fact or maybe it's not so sad it's just something to accept well awesome well audience as you can see there are strong themes in source magic you'll get some messages on how to help the world unified messages we're talking and something will jump out for you that will enlighten you but we are at the end usual suspects to get your book carl or anything you want to mention uh no not really i think uh, it's it's uh, always a bit of a dilemma when you put 
sort of uh, eclectic different pieces together but i'm very <laughs> happy with the book because yeah. even though it sort of is uh ranging from a lot of topics and stuff there is a red thread in there and it's really it's a good title source magic because it all boils down to how we relate to what we experience uh whether it's through culture or literature or big political things or or just uh, spiritual things um it's basically all the same because they're all parts of our like, own experience and other people ex experience that they have tried to formulate to share with other people. And that I think is a, an essential part of what I call source magic. You have to go to the source and the source is something that is access accessible to everyone. All right, wonderful. Well, we will have show notes where you can get uh, more information on Carl and his book and definitely check it out. Well, Carl, once again, thank you very much for coming on the show and giving us your time and your gnosis. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure and we'll talk again soon, I think. I hope so. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Carl's enthusiasm is only matched by his acumen. A hunk a hunk of burning gnosis. In our second part, Carl will continue talking about the trickster in Ragnarok. Fate and fortune, baby. We'll pivot to the legacy and impact of the Gnostic TV series, The Prisoner. Then Carl will contemplate on the 1960s. What went wrong and what went right? What can we still learn from that decade and what lingers from it? This will lead to what, as magic users, we can do today to make the world more magical. And yes, we'll cover shamanism in our second part. So please become a member for the full Vision Quest. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime, a Lunar Cycle, or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon to meet your needs. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and higher level Patreons. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations on Stripe or the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe or on any YouTube show. If you want to help via Bitcoin or other crypto, reach out to me for an address. If you need help with uh, all or any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true shame and self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.